Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. You're with Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you every week. This is our 134th episode. As usual, laser focused our eyes on the question of world hunger. Every time the United Nations brings out a report on the question of hunger, we are right there. People's Dispatch, Globetrotter, not trying to ever obfuscate the fact that people are getting hungrier and hungrier. Prashant, this report, one in 10, I know that the numbers are obviously not as high in these reports as reality, but the trend line is pretty startling. Right. I mean, I think there are two things. One is that I think, of course, like you said, all said and done, these reports are probably an underestimation. And also the fact that when we talk about something uh, like hunger, the, these official reports often carry categories. And, you know, the numbers that I mentioned here fall people falling into various categories. So we're not talking about hunger versus a good diet or hunger versus good health for that matter. We're talking about various levels of uh, hunger and and which is why the numbers are in, in that way really staggering as well in some uh, in their own respects. So <clears throat> I think the latest report and this report is by, of course, five uh, organizations, the food, food and agriculture organizations, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, Children's, United Nations Children's Fund, all of them sort of compiling this report in which says that 691 million and 783 million, anywhere between this is the total number of people who are uh, facing hunger. Mind you, this is not the people who have access to a good diet. We'll come to that later. Or don't have access to a good diet. We'll come to that later. And I think two important trends that we need to capture because uh, we're looking at this number, like I said, between 691 million and 783 million people. And if you take, say, the mid-level number that's around 730 or 720 million, this is still a huge increase from pre-pandemic levels. So over the past two years, you know, uh, we often, people often said that, okay, the pandemic is the reason why things have got bad. Now people are saying the Ukraine war is the reason why, uh, you know, uh, things are a bit bad, etc., etc. But one thing to note is that even if the pandemic had not been considered, uh, and now this is 2023, we can't, really can't use that excuse anymore. The fact is that we are still massively, uh, far more people are hungry when compared to the pre-pandemic years. And I think the numbers are, again, 9.2% of the world's population faces chronic hunger in 2022, as opposed to 7.9% in 2019. And I think uh, this is interesting also to sort of look at in the context. When we, the most important question is, that is the problem one of food production itself? And the answer is that clearly it's not, because uh, you know there, there is enough food for, I think, to almost feed the world's population twice over, almost. So definitely, if close to a billion people of some 730 million people are facing chronic hunger clearly it's not an issue of availability of food or the production of food it's definitely a question of how uh, you know food is distributed how the world economy is structured itself which gives rise to this crisis and you know but you know if we go a bit more into the details there are some other numbers which are almost as shocking as well which is that if you look at the number of people who have who do not have access to uh, say uh, safe to safe nutritious and sufficient food that's around nearly 30% of the world's population. So uh, you see, uh, that is an, ins- it's an incredible number, 2.4 billion people facing moderate or severe uh, food insecurity. And that, I think, is more than enough evidence of the fact that there is definitely a problem. And you cannot blame this on the pandemic. You cannot blame this on the war because the report itself says so. 
which is the fact that if the pandemic had not happened, if the uh, you know if the war had not happened, we still would not be in a position to meet our goals for 2030, which was to eliminate hunger. This is one of the sustainable development goals that the United Nations had put forward that by 2030 we should eliminate hunger. So even if there was no pandemic, even if there was no war, we were nowhere close to meeting the kind of target. And I believe even if these two were not there, there would still be hundreds of millions of people who were hungry. And the report makes it very clear. Of course, the report also goes more into the impact of urbanization. It talks about uh, you know, the impact of stunting, uh, how children and women are especially affected by this crisis. All that very much in focus. But I think the larger <clears throat> numbers which are really, uh, which really make you question what, what is it about how the world is structured right now? And in this context also uh, just recently went through the Tricon dossier, the Tricontinental dossier on, uh, you know, a different development model. And I think it stresses some of the a very similar set of points that it's not, it's capitalism itself and the kind of development model it has brought across the world that really is responsible for this glaring lack of, uh, you know, equality among people and the fact that millions and hundreds of millions of people are remaining hungry in 2023 at a time when we are producing enough food to almost feed the world twice over. It's a really important story. We're going to keep following this, of course. Uh, but let's move on now to another interesting development in Brussels. The um, organization which represents Latin American Caribbean states is meeting alongside the European Union. Zoe, I was interested to see Human Rights Watch writes a letter to the heads of governments about Nicaragua, uh, saying that there are human rights violations in Nicaragua. Why is Nicaragua participating? It's very interesting. I looked at the details on incarceration. Uh, Nicaragua incarcerates 332 people per 100,000 of population. United States incarcerates 664 people per 100,000 population, double the incarceration rate. I didn't see Human Rights Watch write a report about the United States to the NATO members. We're going to come back to the NATO summit. What's going on in Brussels? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could even say, how are any of the European countries having the moral ground to even participate in any uh, international space if we're going to put limits on, on countries in that way? Um, but yes, they are meeting Monday and Tuesday in Brussels, heads of state from CELAC, heads of state from European Union, a important bilateral meeting, uh, by regional meeting, sorry, that is uh, the first in eight years. Quite an interesting moment. We're seeing that CELAC, which is of course a platform of regional integration of Latin America and the Caribbean, which for a couple of years had sort of fallen into the background as the Organization of American States was attempting to resurrect itself. But that has once again proved uh, not possible for the OAS uh, has now kind of just been relegated to this, this figure of ridicule and um, distress. And CELAC has really emerged as the primary platform for economic cooperation, for trade, for medical cooperation, for all sorts of pressing discussions within Latin America and the Caribbean. And it is the primary uh, partner in these sort of bi-regional dialogues. And so they're going to uh, Brussels Monday and Tuesday, uh, but this meeting has not been without its uh, difficulties. And so in this week leading up to the summit, several Latin American authorities and civil society organizations 
have been raising the alarms about uh, the attitude of the European Union regarding this summit, it would appear that Europe is still trapped in this sort of colonial mentality where it thinks that it can dictate uh, who comes to the table, what they discuss, and what sort of positions they're going to take. And so specifically with the war in Ukraine, uh, the European Union wanted to invite Vladimir uh, Zelensky to participate in the summit despite the fact that the countries of Latin America and the Caribbean have really uh, maintained, the majority of them, a, a position of neutrality, a position of non-involvement, of non-alignment, of refusing to send weapons, of refusing uh, to kind of take this strong position that EU uh, and uh, the US and North American uh, countries have taken. Uh, they also, the EU also in their draft declaration that was circulated to CELAC before, in, in this in this week, it also included a clause that uh, sharply condemned Russia, that expressed support behind Ukraine. This was also rejected by Latin American leaders who, again, have had this position of non-alignment. Uh, and finally, of course, the, the EU has continued to attack countries, including uh, Nicaragua, including Venezuela, and they even passed a resolution in the European Parliament days before the summit, of course, in an attempt to intimidate um, against Cuba, saying that Cuba was a uh, violator of human rights and that Diaz-Canel, who is currently in Europe, who traveled to Europe for the summit, should be sanctioned by the EU. So these are clear acts of, uh, I mean, in some ways, the, the resolution against Cuba is an act of intimidation. They also said that authoritarian leaders should not participate in the CELAC EU summit. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Latin American leaders are determined uh, to, to make this, this summit a success. The cooperation between these two regions is crucial, especially in the area of uh, development and especially in the area of the environment where Latin America, of course, is an, a, a region where many different uh, European countries, different uh, companies operate, where they extra extract and exploit the natural resources of Latin America as well. Um, so it's very important that there is dialogue between these two regions, that they can come to agreements, that they can engage in a, in, a, in a space that's of equal respect. And I think that's really what the Latin American leaders have called for. Well, in Brussels, you had this um, place called the NATO headquarters down the road from where CELAC and the European Union will be meeting um, just down the road uh, in Brussels in, in Belgium. Uh, but this time, the NATO summit was not held in, in Brussels. It tours the continent. It was held in Lithuania, in Vilnius, on the 11th and 12th of July. Now, that's interesting. Lithuania is one of the first countries um, that was in the USSR to join NATO. Uh, it joined NATO in 2004. Lithuania is also interesting because prior to the Russian entry beyond the Donbass line into Ukraine on the 24th of February, um, Lithuania was already supplying weapons to Ukraine. It has a very long history of links to the, this Ukrainian government. And there was some expectation uh, from Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine that at this NATO meeting in Vilnius, Lithuania, um, Ukraine would be given, as it were, a clear path into NATO membership. This issue of NATO membership is interesting. Uh, neither the United States nor Germany were happy to allow a full-scale entry of Ukraine into NATO at the Vilnius summit, uh, principally because they worried that this would immediately trigger Article 5 
of the Washington Treaty, which set up the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in 1949. Article 5 of the Washington Treaty says that if one member of a NATO state is attacked, then others must respond in kind. It's a collective, quote unquote, defense agreement. Um, that was the articulated hesitancy coming from Washington and from Berlin. Well, okay, but on the other hand, of the 28 countries that have been arming Ukraine, 25 of them are NATO countries. And in fact, NATO has been in the lead here, um, providing not only you know diplomatic support to the Ukrainian government, but also military assistance and aid of different kinds. Now, Ukrainian forces are training in many NATO countries, often at bases uh, which are used by NATO. So it's very difficult for um, NATO to say that Ukraine has not been to some extent brought in. But this hesitancy by the United States and by Germany did disappoint Mr. Zelensky, who at a public rally in Vilnius uh, directly and, and frontally condemned um, these countries for not absorbing uh, Ukraine into NATO immediately. Uh, there is a suggestion in Washington that Mr. Zelensky is being a little petulant with some of his comments. After all, NATO is doing everything it possibly can. And in fact, a close reading of the Vilnius um, communique demonstrates that effectively the United States and Germany have said that Ukraine is going to enter NATO, that that is an inevitability. It's simply a matter of having the hostilities either suspended with some sort of ceasefire or the end of this conflict after which NATO will absorb Ukraine. I think that was very clear in the Vilnius statement. Equally interesting was the situation of Sweden. Sweden had applied to join NATO. Swedish membership had been blocked by Turkey and Hungary. Well, Turkey said that the problem with Sweden is that Sweden is a refuge for anti-Turkish Kurdish militants and others, and also that Sweden allows people to go off and burn the Quran in public. Well, the Swedes have tightened up some of their laws uh, in, you know, to try to placate Mr. Erdogan. And as well, Sweden um, deported some of the uh, anti-Turkish radicals who were in Sweden. Um, this was a step. Also, Sweden said that it would help Turkey uh, drive the agenda to bring Turkey into the European Union. You got to imagine that Mr. Erdogan, a real bizarre politician, was able to get a lot of concessions for withdrawing Turkey's veto uh, on allowing Sweden to enter NATO. It looks now that with a vote in the Turkish parliament, it looks now that the road for Sweden's entry is pretty much guaranteed. Interesting, the first se section of the Vilnius communique talked about NATO as a defensive alliance. Um, this is an interesting position that NATO has taken since 1949, talked about collective defense and so on. On the other hand, Article 5 and its usage demonstrates that it's really difficult to think of it as a strictly defensive alliance. Firstly, NATO uh, spends m vastly more than half the world's military budget. And secondly, as NATO pledges to go up to 2% of national budgets for defense, as they go up to that threshold, the NATO countries are going to be about 75 to 80% of world military spending. It's very hard to see that as defensive. Its own history, entering into Yugoslavia to destroy that country in 1999, entry into Afghanistan in 2003, and the destruction of Libya in 2011. That history itself does not really 
uh, allow NATO to sit back and say we're a defensive alliance. Looks pretty aggressive to me as far as um, things go. Uh, but we shall see. This was the NATO summit. It's an annual summit. This summit seemed to be the most clear return by NATO to the Cold War agenda. Um, the very clearest return to the Cold War. Um, there is no hesitancy any longer. You're listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant, the co-editors of People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Happy to be with you this week as every week. Prashant, we're going to go back to Kenya. Um, you know, it's interesting. People's Dispatch, one of the few places to give global coverage to countries like Kenya. And you just don't seem to uh, want to withdraw from, from that position of covering important countries in the global south. What's happening in Kenya? Right. Uh, quite momentous developments. I, in a few hours, we'll have a very detailed copy that uh, lists what's happened uh, here. But we also, over the past few months, been regularly covering the situation in Kenya. Kenyan President William Ruto uh, you know, recently gained quite a bit of uh, in, in Western circles, notoriety in other circles, uh, a lot of interest by his very strong comments against the global financial order. But uh, actually, if you look at some of his uh, performance ever since coming to power, he's pretty much, you know, uh, accepted the playbook. Of course, one can argue that he has very little choice, but he's accepted the playbook of the IMF and implemented policies which pretty much reflect that. And over the past 10 days or so, we have seen, you know, massive uh, uh, you know, protests and uh, unhappiness in Kenya. This has been building up for months, by the way, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, William Ruto has sort of, uh, while he came to power last year, winning an election, which is, of course, as uh, often in the, is the case in the case in Kenya, quite controversial. But nonetheless, he, uh, you know, came to power with a very pro-poor agenda, talking about uplifting the poor. But the policies he sort of, he, he brought in as part of his finance package, involved actually substantially raising costs for the poor in the name of, you know, say, uh, what do you call generating revenue for the government. And I think one of the most, uh, uh, one of the most problematic aspects of the, for many Kenyans was the fact that there was a proposal to double the value added taxes on uh, fuel petroleum products, which would basically mean that there would be a huge hit on the finances of uh, ordinary Kenyans. And then there was also this aspect of, uh, say, cutting from people's salary in the name of adding to a housing fund, which the Communist Party of Kenya, many other forces on the left said that would actually not benefit uh, the people, although it is ostensibly supposed to benefit the people. So this has been in the news for many, many months now, and uh, there have been massive protests uh, and unhappiness about it. The unions have taken a very strong stand towards it. This is, of course, taking place at a time when, sorry, this is, of course, taking place at a time when, uh, you know, the cost of living in Kenya is very high as a result of various factors. Kenya is dealing with a huge crisis of debt. And, you know, I think I believe 60% of its, uh, you know, GDP, uh, that, that's the rate at which its debt lies. And in, in the midst of all this, we have this proposal, which is, you know, uh, what you would call a very classic neoliberal proposal, so to speak, right? So uh, the Supreme Court actually overturned or decided against the you know this finance bill after it was passed, and it was celebrated as a victory for the people. But then President Ruto decided to implement those policies anyway, which is what sparked the massive round of protests. And these protests have been quite deadly. The official claims themselves are that six people have been killed, and certain you know certain reports saying that it could be as many as twelve or fifteen people as well. And there have been a lot of reports of even children facing tear gas, for instance. 
uh, you know, massive attacks on Twitter, hundreds of arrests taking place. So Kenya going definitely through a very difficult situation at this point of time. And at the core of it, I think, is a situation which many countries are facing in the global south, which is that there is a huge restriction on how they can raise revenues. And most of these countries are forced by bodies like the International Monetary Fund to actually increase taxes in various ways or privatize uh, public services in order to raise revenues for even basic uh, you know, basic functioning. And there's such a huge focus on this kind of raising revenue that ultimately it is actually the people who suffer the most. Whereas there is actually very little provision for, say, uh, in the case of Kenya, it might be limited to space, but there is very little provision for, say, imposing taxes on the rich or other forms of, say, obtaining credit as well. And I think this is a larger question which the global community has to see, which is what multilateral financial institutions have to see. We know there's a BRICS meeting coming up in August does this give the possibility of countries like Kenya, for instance, benefiting from loans which do not come with so many conditionalities? All these are, of course, larger and long-term questions, but right now, very a difficult situation on the streets of Kenya. Streets of Kenya, elections, IMF, all these things, a soup that you've been covering over the past couple of years, same in Guatemala. You know, Zoe, it's hard to unravel what's going on there. Election results, first round validated, party thrown out. What's going on? It is, it is, it's a bit of a tangled web. And I think that's exactly what they're trying to do is, is take a lot of different moves, make a lot of decisions that kind of obscure what's happening, obscure uh, this uh, democratic process. And we have been covering the Guatemalan electoral process now uh, for the past several weeks since it took place on June 25th. I'll try to summarize it in a few words so it doesn't get lost. People go to the polls on June 25th. They're not able to vote for all of the candidates because some of the candidates were already disqualified by the courts in Guatemala, which had been previously condemned. Uh, they were disqualified on technicalities despite being heavily, heavily favored uh, in, in the opinion polls. So people go to the polls on June 25th the initial results indicate that Sandra Torres, the former first lady, and Bernardo Arevalo of the Simia party would go to the second round. And it's important to state that these elections saw kind of pretty low participation and many many uh, blank ballot ballots cast. So she only received, for example, 15% and Bernardo around 11%. So these initial results indicate that they will be going to the second round. Days later, right-wing parties that did not make it to the second round lodge a formal complaint and say that uh, there was fraud and that there needs to be a recount and the official results would had, which had not been released yet uh, should be suspended. So the court says, okay, we're gonna suspend the uh, release of these results and we're going to do a bit of a recount and assess these complaints. This process takes place and Wednesday, July uh, 12th, uh, the Supreme Electoral Court uh, releases the final results affirming that Sandra Torres and Bernardo Arevalo are going to the second round of elections on August 20th. An hour later, a different court in Guatemala suspends uh, the Semilla party, says that it's, uh, it suspends the legal um, uh, character of this party, saying that when they were collecting signatures for these elections, uh, about 5,000 of them were done allegedly illegally. However, 
according to the Guatemalan constitution, you cannot suspend the legal um, representative of one of the parties that is actively participating in these elections. So the courts are at sort of this impasse where you have the electoral court saying that this party is going to the second round. You have another court, the constitutional court, saying that the Semilla party was is, uh, is suspended. And uh, essentially you have people taking to the streets to say, this, pro this process, these elections have already been undermined. There's already a process of undermining the democratic participation of all the different parties. And now, now that we've voted, they're once again trying to undermine the vote and trying to undermine the, the full participation of parties that do not pertain to this uh, traditional ruling class in Guatemala. Uh, the Semilla party is a sort of center-left party, uh, anti-corruption, a little more progressive than the other parties and outside the traditional politics and specifically has spoken out uh, very strongly against the previous governments that have uh, dismantled the corruption investigations, have dismantled anti-corruption laws. This is one of their big, uh, one of the big platforms of Semilla. So right now you have a situation where there's sort of this inter-institutional conflict. Uh, Bernardo Arevalo and Semilla have gone on the offensive. They said this is an attack on democracy. This is an attack on all people of Guatemala. Uh, they have lodged legal complaints with different courts in Guatemala. They say they're going to participate in the second round and will defend the vote of the people. Uh, so it's a developing situation. Yesterday, people were on the streets rallying, accompanying Semilla party. There's been a lot of different statements coming from embassies, coming from international uh, human rights organizations saying that democracy is, is under attack in Guatemala. We'll definitely be following this story because as I said, every hour it's a new development. Um, they have essentially contested the suspension of the party uh, on constitutional grounds. So we'll see how that turns out. But most likely we're gonna see a second round August 20th between Esemia and UNE. Uh, and anything besides that will be a serious setback in what has already taken place in this sort of convoluted electoral process. You'll be watching that. I watch oil prices. Um, a few months ago, the International Monetary Fund's head of um, the Arab world made a statement say saying that if oil prices don't go above $80 a barrel, there's going to be a problem for Saudi Arabia's exchequer. Saudi Arabia had been squeezed by its war in Yemen. Saudi Arabia had been squeezed by major infrastructural projects such as Nemo, the Red Sea Islands project and so on. And the IMF said, look, uh, declining oil prices are simply not uh, going to assist Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia can't pump its way out of this crisis. Just a quick uh, reminder to people in 2012, Oil prices were well above $100 a barrel. 111.63 was where it had sat. Then it plummeted to $43 a barrel in 2016. That decline was precipitous. That decline is what moved Saudi Arabia to welcome Russia into a new process called OPEC Plus, where they would sit around the OPEC countries and countries like Russia, which had emerged as a major energy supplier to a lot of the world uh, for them to basically coordinate prices and volumes of oil. Uh, the OPEC plus now has about 40% of the world's energy providers, oil and natural gas inside this grouping. It's a very considerable grouping, but by no means has the creation of OPEC plus been easy. 
um, over the course of the period since 2016, the Saudis and the Russians in particular have been really at each other's throats uh, around volume cuts and who is selling to whom. One of the big places of contest is Russia's um, sales to India and China. Now, Russia is the largest seller of energy to, to India and Russia is emerging as the largest seller of energy to China. This has been a real dent for the Saudis. The Saudis have used the um, approach of, of cutting back on, on, on the volumes of barrels produced of oil per month by about a million barrels of oil a month. Um, they're bringing this down even further. They, are, they believe that cutting volume is going to help prices. Except, of course, that the Russians in this period since the war have been not only upping their energy sales to countries like India and China, but also offering discounted prices. This is creating a real tension between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And it's important to focus a little bit on that tension. However, and by the way, it's because of OPEC Plus that in 2022, oil prices were able to rise above $100 a barrel. Now they're again inching upwards as um, northern countries enter deeply into their summer of, of oil. The United States had been buying oil in the spring to fill up their reserves in order for all the people in the summertime who drive uh, to go visit family and friends and so on. Oil price uh, you know, often goes up at this time. So the United States had, uh, had basically filled their reserves. Now, prices above $80 a barrel. More coordination between Russia and Saudi Arabia at the last OPEC plus meeting. It'll be interesting to see what happens as Russia continues to be a dominant seller of energy uh, to India and China and how Saudi Arabia is going to react to this. One reason on the table of why Saudi Arabia accepted the deal with Iran brokered by China is that Saudi Arabia is eager to continue to be one of the largest energy sellers to China. We shall see. Um, this is a tangled web between politics and economics. Can't look at one without the other. You've been with Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Very happy to be with you. See you next week. Overcome. We shall overcome.